0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Language is always changing, and we tend not to like it. We understand that new words must be created for new things, but the way English is spoken today rubs many of us the wrong way. Whether it's the use of literally to mean figuratively, or the way young people use LOL and like, or business jargon like what's the ask... It often seems as if language is deteriorating before our eyes. The truth is different and a lot less scary, says John McWhorter in his new book, Words on the Move, Why English Won't and Can't Sit Still, Like Literally, which explores how English has always been in motion and continues to evolve today. He says we should embrace and appreciate these changes, not condemn them. John McWhorter teaches linguistics, philosophy, and music history at Columbia University, writes for various publications on language issues and race issues such as Time, Wall Street Journal, The Daily Beast, CNN, and The Atlantic. He told his mother he wanted to be a book writer when he was five, and he's happy that it worked out. John McWhorter uh, joins us for the hour. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, so, apparently, according to your bio here, you wanted to be a book writer when you were five. That's that's pretty early to know, what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, I, I think I read early, and I'm not sure why, but I wanted to write these books that I was reading. And I should say that, weird as I always am, it wasn't the fiction, it was the nonfiction. Now, I didn't know the term for it, but it was reading books about, you know, early man, or the human body, or what the, you know, the capitals. Other worlds, countries where I wanted to write information books like that, and I'm not sure I knew that it was actually going to happen, but that that was an initial goal of mine.
0: What about uh, linguistics drew you in? Uh, you know, language is fascinating. What uh, what about it drew you in?
1: Um, the fact that there are so many different ways of basically expressing the same humanity. For me, it began not with you know. I think many people would very understandably think because I'm black, that what interested me first about language was that black people spoke differently than white people, or it was the social issues. But actually, not. it was that there was this little girl who spoke Hebrew, and I didn't know what Jewishness was, I didn't know what Hebrew was, but all of a sudden when I was four, there was this girl I couldn't understand. And it just drove me crazy that I couldn't penetrate what she was saying. And I asked my mother, what language? Uh, Well, I wouldn't have known that. What is she doing? And my mother said, well, and she went and asked her parents, and they said, We're speaking Hebrew. And she came and she said, They're speaking Hebrew. It drove me crazy that we couldn't speak two things. I just thought that was such a fascinating idea. To this day, when I think about that afternoon, you know, 46 years ago, I remember how my heart was just beating faster. And I have never lost that sense that, wow, they can do it two ways. There's this whole other set of words, and more to the point, whole other way of putting the words together that they can use to talk. And they're saying the same stuff we're saying, but they've got this other way. It's like they have this other toy. And to this day, I'm 51. And to me, linguistics is really about my toys. And Words on the Move is about my toys. It's not when I say that language always changes. I don't mean that from a political point of view. I'm not saying that We have to embrace what ordinary people are doing, because that's the proper politics. So if you ask me, that is the proper politics. But this is a book about just how language works, and therefore how the English you hear must work, too. So, you know, there's a little bit of old English, but not too much. There's a lot of what language was like 60 or 70 years ago in America, and a lot of what language is like just out in the world now, because I think that we can learn to hear the English around us with more joy and I think we're trained to.
0: And that's the key word, isn't it? We did, the, the sentence, the beginning here, language is always changing, we know that, and we tend not to like it. We, we, a little change is okay, but there's a lot of change that, that many of us uh, decry, bemoan, complain about.
1: Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. You think there's the way the language is supposed to be, and it's written down. And what's crucial is that we can't help thinking of writing as what language is because we're raised in a writing society. So we think the language is a way. That's because the way it sits on the page never changes because it was printed. And then we think if people are doing something differently, then it must be that they're departing from the way the language is supposed to be. That's a very understandable way of hearing it. But the truth is that all language has always been an inherently changeable thing, and not just because cultures come together. I think everybody understands that. We need a word for sushi, etc. cetera. It's not just people coming together and culture changing. Language changes like clouds change. Every generation hears what the previous generation said in slightly different ways. You hear the vowels a little differently. You hear meanings a little bit differently. There are variations on what people mean that you kind of stick into what they said. And because of that, and this isn't just the generation gap in the United States, I'm talking about the whole world forever. You know, this is people living on the savanna. Language changes in the same way as wind keeps blowing clouds into different patterns. So even if the world never changed, even if a bunch of people lived in a cave, as I often say, for 3,000 years, when they came out of the cave, the language would be completely different, even though nothing could ever happen to them. Mm -hmm. And so if we can hear language like that, then it becomes a kind of spectator sport to hear what the new things are going to be instead of thinking hmm people are doing it wrong
0: yeah yeah have fun with it right and, and uh, i i put myself in the in the camp that, that you're uh, trying to a change that uh, <laughs> I I grew up with. Uh, my father's an English major, and he he definitely right. Um, you know, w- w- preached prescriptive grammar, and we were <laughs> we were supposed to speak very correctly. Exactly. Um, and I took great pride in that. So I, I've uh, you know I've always uh, kind of been in the other camp. Um, we do have an email, by the way. You can email us or call us here with John McWhorter. We're uh, talking about language. Words on the Move is the book. And uh, the number is 800-826-1495, 826 1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. And we got this email. Hi, Tom. This interview is lit. You're keeping it fresh. The way language is changing is cray-cray, but it's totes awesome. John's book sounds straight savage. Thanks, my man. That's, I'm guessing that's a young person.
1: Um, yes, it probably is. And I think it's great that anybody would, you know, of course, read the book at all. And the book does involve a lot of modern slang, things that we're trained to hear as sort of the garbage, but that really are just language changing in the same way that Latin became French. But a lot of the book, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of the book kind of wears a cardigan sweater in that the change is just things that have been going on among even very buttoned-up people since the dawn of time. Little things like this. We say, huh, 100 years ago, people said, hey, there's no particular reason. It's just that language always changes. Boy, these are some pretty good scrambled eggs, huh? 1920, that would have been, hmm, these are some pretty good scrambled eggs, hey. Well, you know, around 1940, that started changing, and now we say, huh. And nobody ever really thought about it, but language changes. It used to be that more people said, uh, but now increasingly people are saying, um, linguists are measuring little things like that or for example a hundred years ago if you talked about diving you dived off of a diving board now we're more likely to say dove these things are always changing and so the book is full of stuff like that not to mention how a word like big ass or lame ass or long ass how that use of ass developed or what the word totally really means today that's In the book. All sorts of things are in there that you wouldn't really think of as language, but they really are Latin becoming French, except this is modern English becoming whatever it'll be in a thousand years.
0: Now I want to talk about a lot of those uh, things. Very very fascinating. I want to go back to this uh, email. I became familiar with the word "lit." Uh, teaching a, a freshman uh, uh, introductory freshman class just last uh, semester, just walking between classes with my students, I, I, I kept hearing this word. This, you know, this class is totally lit. This activity is totally lit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. This I is... learned lit
1: just a year ago myself. Yeah, from my <laughs> students.
0: <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's it's new. This this brings up uh, generational markers, I guess. Every generation wants to have their own words to, to to mark them as different? I don't know what's going on there.
1: You know, no. And in that, I differ from a lot of my colleagues, but I think we tend to think of these things as too deliberate. To an extent, being a teenager or being a young person is to not want to be like the generation before you. That's definitely true. But you can take that into an idea that 17-year-olds are sitting around carefully concocting slang in order to sound different, when really, you just pick up what's around you, and what's around you is different from the way it was before because time went by. And so, in a way, it's around you because the clouds changed, and it's not that you change the clouds. So, of course, it's going to be younger people who are going to speak in new ways more because people get set in their ways, although older people also start speaking differently. I am 51. I hate to admit that that's now older. I do not talk exactly the same way as I did 20 years ago, partly because I hear younger people and partly just because new things have crept into my own speech. So to an extent, yes, you can imagine a teenager chewing their gum and rolling their eyes and not wanting to sound like Dad. But it's partly just that it would have changed anyway, just like the clouds
0: yeah i take your point it's it, it it is uh it brings a smile to my face this ri- the ridiculous example that you, you know you, you use of a 17 year old sitting around uh, in inventing this <laughs> language it just it just develops right and then it becomes
1: yeah
0: it, it, it becomes a maybe a marker of generation um you use an example of a dictionary you say dictionaries um are are a problem in a way
1: they are because they and i mean i love dictionaries and i say that in the books that, you know, all of us can enjoy what they're like physically, and you can enjoy this snapshot of what a language was like at a given time, but that's what they are. It worries me when, for example, somebody will open up a public address by saying, here is the definition of such and such in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, as if that's what it means in some cosmic way, in the same way that protons and neutrons always operate in the same way. When really, what you see in the dictionary is what that word meant when they composed the dictionary. And that's very accurate, and it takes great work to compile a dictionary. But a dictionary is like a snapshot of a person. And so just like you take a snapshot of a person, and I'm not going to say when they're a child, because that kind of distorts it. Snapshot of a person when they're 30. And then a snapshot of a person when they're not 80, but 50. When they're, they're going to look different. Nobody would say that the way they looked when they were 30 was the real way, and the way they looked when they were 50 was some sort of accident or some sort of degradation. You know, you change your hairstyle, you change your clothes, there's subtle changes in your appearance. You know, you're just different from one year to another. That's what words are like, too. The so dictionaries are great, but in a way, I like the idea of them being online, because that'll allow them to be changed faster, because it'll discourage the idea that, for example, decimate means this because it meant such and such 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Or the word literally means such and such because this is what it says in the dictionary. When really that, it's i speak gently, scientifically that doesn't make any more sense than saying that today's rhinoceroses are somehow wrong because in the past they were a different color and their horns had a different shape. It's just like the evolution of flora and fauna.
0: Mm. Uh, he, as you write in the book, uh, Samuel Johnson, who, who compiled the first uh, English dictionary, um, he, he kind of had this attitude, didn't he? He wanted to, wanted to freeze language in its proper form, but but he realized you you can't do that.
1: You just you just can't do it. And I think anybody reads Johnson, and he's wise, and he's funny, and he says, "Well, you can't change it." But I worry trying to put myself in other people's heads, that people think, yeah, he's wrong, because cultures come together, and so they change the language, or because people invent new things, and so you're going to need new words. I think maybe people think slang is going to change, especially because we think, well, young people don't want to be like older people, and so, of course, they're going to be snappy new terms and expressions. But when it comes to the difference between the way people use the word literally in 1600. And the way people use it now, people think, well, something went wrong. Or if people say, so, you have a new haircut, instead of, you have a new haircut, people think, no, that usage of so is somehow wrong. That means that they don't quite get what Samuel Johnson meant, or frankly, what he should have meant.
0: Every year, the uh, the Oxford the Dictionary of Oxford English uh, Language uh, rolls out the the new words that are, that are entering that uh, august uh, publication um it's great fanfare um it it's it seems like it's almost uh, words entering the the pantheon they're now approved um, i wonder what you think about yeah.
1: that well i think that's great i mean it shows that the language changes and every word that they accept feels kind of like an intruder even to me you know i am not immune to the feeling that the language is one way and then when i hear something new i think that eh. the only difference between the linguist and everybody else is that we Kind of train ourselves in a zen fashion to get over that very natural feeling. But, you know, something like vape, it doesn't feel like a real word because the concept is so new. It has certain sociological associations. We think, well, vape must be slang. But to the extent that we can assume that people are going to be vaping for a long time, it's not really slang. And to the extent that the word is kind of made up, well, a lot of words are kind of made up. It's at the point I'm 51. I'm just old enough to remember when brunch was a term that was in quotation marks. When I was a kid, when people had brunch, you kind of giggled when you said brunch, this idea that there was a name for the meal in between breakfast and lunch. I would venture that for anybody under about 35, maybe even 40, the idea that brunch isn't a word would make no sense at all. And yet it was very much made up when I was a little kid. And so you never know what's going to feel normal after it's been used for a while. It's just that today we have this ceremony where we officially introduce new words. I'm sure that if in 1975 someone had decreed that brunch was the word of the year, a lot of people have said, oh, come now, that's not a word. And now, frankly, brunch is realer to more people than to many people than breakfast, And that's because it is a word. That's how words happen. But it can be hard to accept it because there's an extent to which nobody likes novelty, especially with something as intimate as language.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, John McWhorter. The, the book is Words on the Move, Why English Won't and Can't Sit Still, like literally. Um, I want to talk about uh, when we come back, uh, John McWhorter, um, you say that in the book, and I want to get into many more examples, you say you, you want to take us back to uh, before the, the mid-18th century, which is when this idea of prescriptive language and when we got all serious about language before that apparently we had a little more fun with the changes uh we'll start there and and uh, talk about much more following the break Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra presents the Halloween Spooktacular Family Pops Concert, Saturday, October 29th, with matinee and evening performances in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Independent candidate for president Evan McMullen is possibly on the cusp of doing something no third-party candidate has done in decades. That is, win a state. We're talking about Utah, where McMullen is neck and neck with Donald Trump at the latest polls, even leading in one or two. Evan McMullen is a former CIA operative, business professional, and former House GOP chief policy director. Hope you join us for a special broadcast, a conversation with Evan McMullen.
1: That full interview coming up next, following Access Utah at 10 o'clock.
0: Independent candidate for president Evan McMullen is popular
1: Every time my dad has bad news, he takes us out for ice cream. It's kind of his M.O. Don't ever go to the Cold Stone Creamery with my dad. (laughs) Just don't do it. Join us for this story and more next time
0: on the Moth Radio Hour from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org.
1: Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access time Tom Williams. John McWhorter says, Language is always changing, and we tend not to like it. We understand that new words must be created for new things, but the way English is spoken today rubs many of us the wrong way. And John McWhorter says that we should embrace and appreciate changes, not condemn them. His new book is Words on the Move. You're... Uh, uh, able to join the conversation here at eight hundred eight two six one four nine five eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or 1495 at gmail dot com upraccess at uh, gmail dot com. John McWhorter, uh, you write in your introduction that uh, you want in the book to take us uh, backwards uh, before this uh, idea that uh, the change is is bad for the most part, and and you say that the the, the change happened mid eighteenth century. Yeah,
1: the idea that Many people don't speak logically, feel so natural to us, partly because of widespread literacy, but that's not the way anybody felt about how they spoke English, until the emergence of a bourgeois sensibility that created certain sensitivities, and also education and literacy widespread enough that you basically had a populace that was, as you could put it, on writing, that frame of mind that says that what you're speaking is something that exists most permanently and appropriately on the page, and that what you're speaking is just a version of that, and a floppy version of that. That really only starts then. And if you dealt with English speakers in, say, 1500, other than a few extremely picky scholarly people at a time when scholars were much rarer and very few people really read in any real way at all, you would find that people just talked, because English was mostly an oral language, like all but a very few of the 7,000 languages today. And so you you talked, and everybody knew that people from a different area spoke differently. And you might have an idea that the way they spoke didn't fall nicely on the ear because of the way it sounded or something like that. But the idea that you walking around speaking your native language were given to using bad grammar and there were certain things you needed to say differently, nobody had ever heard of that. That's something that was largely created by certain people writing some stuff down, mostly in the 1700s who had an idea that a real language had to be like Latin. There was a sense that Latin's grammar was sort of God's grammar, or ancient Greek's. And it's understandable why they thought that. One could know less then about how many languages there were in the world and how massively they vary. But nevertheless, a lot of the things that we feel insecure about today are really just based on what a few people in periwigs wrote down by candlelight 250 years ago. And we're still... Stuck with it. So yeah, I want to take us back to a time when you talked, and it was a given that if you were talking, you were doing something quite better than anything a horse or even a monkey could do, and that it had its own complexity, and that how it changes is as much fun to see as thinking about the paragon of the animals over the since the dawn of time.
0: What's lost, do you think? You talked about joy. We, maybe we lose joy if, we, if we're so prescriptive, if we're so kind of sour about language changes.
1: Well, a lot of it is also that no language has ever not changed. And so there's a sense many people have that we need to take a deep breath and we need to start fixing the way that we speak and the way that we write and we need to change the education system so that people will <coughs> stop allowing these changes. But that's never worked. There's no society to look towards where that happens. Spoken language always changes, and speaking is the main way that language exists. So the language may stay the same in the newspaper, but the way people talk can never not change. And more to the point, language has never been recorded as going to the dogs. It feels like that can happen, that people stop being able to quite understand each other. But anthropologists, linguists have never discovered a society where one of the catastrophes that happened to befall the people is that their language fell apart. And, of course, negative evidence and positive evidence are different things. But really, language changes in a communal way. It never gets to the point that people can't understand one another. And we really don't have anything to worry about. It's just an illusion that's given to us by the nature of the printed page. And I think we can get beyond it.
0: Uh, in the meantime, though, aren't we judged by the language we speak, the grammar we use? Uh, there are situations where, if you used uh, slang, as a matter of course. You'd uh, you know you you have a negative outcome.
1: Um, definitely. And what I'm saying is not that everybody can talk however they want to. That everybody can say "Billy and me went to the store in public" rather than "Billy and I went to the store." Now. The idea that Billy and me went to the store is wrong is exactly one of those things somebody made up at their desk. But realities are realities. There are certain things that come off a certain way. And you can rail against it, but you can't change it. Those things are not going to change. And so people need to be taught that there are certain ways of speaking and certain ways of writing that you have to master. They're not natural, but you have to master them in order to be taken seriously. It's just like Naked people are not taken seriously in society. It'd be nice, especially in the you know, hotter climes, but it's just not going to be. You have to put some clothes on, and it's as simple as that. You can't chew with your mouth open. My sense is that chewing with your mouth open is probably natural, and some people say food tastes better when you chew with your mouth open. You cannot chew with your mouth open in certain settings and be taken seriously. Same thing with language, but this is the important thing. You can know those things. Without hearing colloquial speech as mistaken. That's what I'm battling against. So, yeah, you're going to have to put on clothes to be taken seriously, and that includes doing some things with your speech that would not occur to a four year old. Sure, that has to be learned, it has to be taught in school. But there's a difference between knowing that and listening to somebody say, Billy and me went to school and we had less books than yesterday instead of fewer books than yesterday, and thinking that person is unintelligent, that person is making a mistake. That person isn't using their language logically. And the reason that you shouldn't think that is because it isn't true. It just doesn't hold up in any objective sense. Rather, that person is speaking informally. Now, if that person doesn't know how to speak formally, then yes, there's a problem. But it's not that their informal speech is barbaric in any way.
0: Here's an email from Anita, and by the way, you can join the program uh, to upraxess at gmail.com, uPraxcess at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. The author is uh, John McWhorter, and the uh, book is Words on the Move. Here's Anita. Uh, Perhaps you remember a TV program, I think it was in the 1980s, titled Amazing Stories. One segment portrayed an older man, highly respected in his office. Younger men came to him uh, for advice, and one time a group of them offered to buy him lunch. However, the word they used for lunch was a different word that he didn't understand. As time went on, he noticed people using more and more words he didn't understand. At the end of the segment, it showed him reading to his little daughter, or maybe granddaughter, from a little ABC book as he tried to relearn language. This was a fun program that I've never forgotten. Now I find myself relearning words, trying to keep up with the grandkids. Fortunately, language doesn't change quite as fast as it did in the uh, story told above. That's uh, Anita.
1: Yeah, Anita is on to exactly the nature of real language. And no, language doesn't change so fast that a grandparent listens to their grandkids speaking something that they really have trouble getting. I mean, luckily, it doesn't happen that way. But the truth is that if we went back 150 years, we would have more of a communication problem than we suppose. So it's not just Beowulf, but say Abraham Lincoln, if you said around him there's a house being built across the street, would have found it peculiar. He would have turned and looked down at you and kind of chuckled. That was considered a very novel and provincial way of putting it in 1850. You were supposed to say, there's a house building across the street. And that wasn't formal. It was the main way to say it. Where there's a house being built across the street was something that came in as a novelty. At first, they were jokes that it was something only women and uneducated people said. And now we can't imagine saying it any other way. Just here we are. And there are all sorts of little things like that. When you read a book like Last of the Mohicans or Moby Dick, written in the early or the mid-1800s. There are all sorts of words being used in ways that kind of throw us. And it's not just that it's archaic in some ways; it's just that Melville lived a long time ago, and a lot of words meaning were subtly different than they are now. So he'll talk about something being pitiful, and we're expecting it to mean that it's broken down, that it's something that we ought to pity. When pitiful, for Melville, meant It gave pity that you could go to a pitiful harbor, i.e. the harbor would give you shelter. All sorts of little things like that, because language is always changing, not just because of culture, but like clouds. You know, there was a pitiful cloud. The pitiful cloud once meant to give pity. Now it's something that evokes pity, just because. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing to watch a word do. Multiply that by all the words, and you've got what language change really is.
0: I wonder if you could talk about uh, the changes in the word adorable. I found that uh, fascinating. You you write uh, about that early in the book.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things. If you adore something, then you think it is absolutely wonderful. And so you adore Citizen Kane. You adore the Notre Dame Cathedral. You adore such a thing. But notice that you would never call any of those things that you adore adorable. Citizen Kane is not adorable The, um, you know, Mount Rushmore is not adorable. Adorable's meaning has changed, and it refers to something that you have a particularly endearing, possibly slightly condescending feeling for. You think of something small or something that's a child. It's a rather precious word. Now, technically, it should mean adorable as in a cathedral being adorable. We don't use it that way because the meaning has changed. Not abruptly... And I should say, to be monotonous, once again, not because of anything cultural, it's just that each word changes according to certain resonances that happen to buzz around it. The sorts of things that you think of as on the margin, after a while, often become what the word actually means. And in terms of adoring something, you might adore big things, but you also adore small things. And if anything, your adoration of things like children and pets, Might be a more impactful feeling than your adoration of things like mountains and monsters. So after a while, adorable comes to refer to small things, even though the word adore itself still has the wider meaning. That's what language is.
0: Uh, Here is an email from Glenn, who emailed upraxcess at gmail.com. You can as well, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with John McWhorter. Words on the Move is the book. Um, This is what Glenn says. In quotations, Methinks they protesteth too much. Uh, Nowhere is the evolution of the English language more evident than one reads Shakespeare. That's what makes it challenging, interesting, and fun. Notice they use the Oxford comma, which is also being transitioned out. Um, There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. In quotation marks. Thanks for indulging my Shakespeare fetish. Uh, That's Glenn.
1: Yeah, Shakespeare (coughs) is very much a part of this. Because there is always the, um, the debate over whether Shakespeare is difficult to understand in real time often. And I think most of us can agree that it often is. Because the actors aren't trained properly, because they don't have British accents, or because you don't understand poetry, or you're not up for dense language. And all those things have some merit, except the one about the British accent. But the reason that you can... Go to a Shakespeare performance, and if you haven't read it before, if you've read it before, fine. And if you're just reading it, fine, because reading is slower and more deliberate, and you can reflect as you go. But if you're watching Shakespeare delivered live, it can be really tiring, and I will openly admit, as someone who is a specialist in language, I'm also a theater person, I love Shakespeare, I have twice seen The Tempest without preparation, and after about 20 minutes, been utterly worn out. And it's because... It is the words that we, we recognize. They are English words for the most part, but they mean different things than what we're used to. And so we listen to somebody saying something, expressing a sentence very confidently, and we don't quite get it because they've used the word in a meaning that doesn't quite compute with what they're probably trying to say. And then that happens in the next sentence, and then three sentences later, and then three sentences later. And the cumulative effect of this is that you feel like you're listening to a radio station that isn't quite tuned in right. That's most of what creates that Shakespeare fatigue. And so if somebody says science, and what they really mean is what we would mean by knowledge, or if somebody says wit, and you're ready to enjoy them talking about being funny, but what they really mean again is knowledge, or if somebody says, I'm a generous person, and what they mean is I'm a noble person, which is what that word meant, pile that on, and it's tough. And I think that nowadays it's sometimes suggested that Shakespeare be either translated or adjusted into modern English. Enough time has gone by that we need to open ourselves up to that possibility. Many people get hopping mad at the idea that anybody would suggest this, because they think that the problem with Shakespeare for many people is just that it's poetry or it's high. But really, it's that the language has changed in the subtle but decisive ways I'm talking about. But we're not taught that that's how language changes. We're taught that how language changes is that cultures come together and new things are invented and that slang changes. But if that's all we know of how language changes, then we're not attuned to the fact that a man writing 400 years ago was writing with words that very often, and not just two or three of them, but, you know, 10%, it's been actually estimated, it's about one in ten words, mean things different enough from what we're used to, that it's hard to get it when you're talking about a whole evening of that language. When one in ten words throw you, because they don't mean what we're used to, you're exhausted. It takes you about 15 minutes, and you're kind of wishing that it were in English. And it's not because you're dumb. It's because Shakespeare's language is just a long time ago.
0: And that that does, it kind of gets to the crux of what we've been talking about. Do you Do you put it in a museum, or do you... Use it the way it's being used today, and yet, as you said, uh, translating Shakespeare into modern English—that's uh, that's anathema to some people. It's, it's it's just you know they get apoplexy about it.
1: Yeah, and I think people hear when it's discussed that what people want is to translate it into vulgar slang, and the reason that's what comes to people's minds is because I don't think it's evident to most people that you would need to translate a word like generous or a word like wit. But the truth is that if you don't know what Shakespeare meant, you're not really getting what he said. And actually, there have been some attempts lately to translate Shakespeare, not into the Vulgate, but into Shakespearean language where where the words don't make sense to us. They're very gently changed. And I swear, if in 20 years it becomes normal to attend, say, a Macbeth like that, where every word that we can't get is just carefully changed to another word that rings in a similar way, but that we can understand. If people could actually see a Macbeth like that and sit without holding their breath, without clenching their fists, and really able to just sit and listen to what the people are saying, I think a fashion would start. It would take one generation who weren't used to Shakespeare in the absolute original. And pretty soon, I think America would love Shakespeare more because you could actually connect with the greatness of the place because you wouldn't have to listen so hard to glean what you could, never quite successfully, of the details of what people
0: are saying. Reminds me of the debate, uh, there was a fierce debate, especially in Metropolitan Opera, over do we have supertitles or not. Um, and it, it's it's kind of a, is this uh, opera going to be an elite uh, art form where mm-hmm. you have to come in knowing uh, the, the, the opera in the original language, or or can we broaden it out with, uh, with supertitles? Eventually they put uh, little supertitles on the back of the chair in front of you, that was the...
1: Yeah, and no. the world kept spinning. And the world kept the spinning, that's right. Go that's
0: ahead, right. Yeah. The, the, Well, yeah, I was just going to say the world kept spinning.
1: <laughs> and it's interesting, that opera issue is one where, yeah, people, I think, get even more upset than with Shakespeare. Many people say that acting means that you can convey what the meaning is through an aria without anybody understanding the words. And quite frankly, and I can't be gentle here, that's nonsense. You do need to understand what the words mean. And so the question becomes, are you going to have done your homework and studied it beforehand? And let's face it, most people don't have time. Or is it going to be sung in English? And that's a whole other story. Or are you going to have the the supertitles? And I'm really glad that at this point, you've got them. Me being just old enough, I remember seeing a couple of operas at the Met before there were supertitles. I was a college student. I did not have time to study beforehand. And frankly, Tosca was boring. I didn't know what was going on because it was in Italian, and, you know, I knew some Italian, but certainly not enough to get this. Whereas today, going to the Met is much easier if you look on the chair, and lo and behold, you know what the person is saying. It should have happened long before it did.
0: We're talking with John McWhorter. The book is Words on the Move. We'll take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about, uh, skip around a bit to get some specific examples. Uh, This one uh, jumped out at me. It's from the last chapter. Uh, It's the use of the word all, as in, this is an example John McWhorter gives in the book, and he was all, so when's the party? And I was all, just ask me tomorrow when I have it all organized. Uh, And he was all, but I need to know now. Um, That use of the word, how that came about, and uh, fascinatingly, uh, John McWhorter proposes what might be future usage, a new verb uh, based on that change in in language. Uh, We'll talk about that much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement, online at utahhumanities.org. Independent candidate for president Evan McMullen is possibly on the cusp of doing something no third-party candidate has done in decades. That is win a state. We're talking about Utah, where McMullen is neck and neck with Donald Trump in the latest polls, even leading in one or two. Evan McMullen is a former CIA operative, business professional, and former House GOP chief policy director. Hope you join us for a special broadcast, a conversation with Evan McMullen.
1: That full interview coming up following Access Utah at 10 o'clock. Consider the human species. We're not very strong. We can't climb very well. We don't
0: swim very well. We
1: can't fly. So how did we make it to the top of the food chain?
0: We came up with the weirdest adaptation probably in the animal kingdom. It's the ability to sweat. We are running other animals to death using our endurance running prowess.
1: I'm Guy Raz, adaptation. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us
0: Sunday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. We've reached our last segment with John McWhorter. The book is Words on the Move. John McWhorter says, uh, Language is always changing. We tend not to like it. We understand that new words must be created for new things, but the way English is spoken today rubs many of us the wrong way. Uh, He said that's uh, that's the wrong uh, attitude. He says... uh, it draws on examples from everyday life, shows how this, these shifts are a natural process common to all languages, and that we should embrace and appreciate these changes, not condemn them. Words on the Move is the title of the book. John McWhorter is our guest, and uh, you can reach us here. Uh, we'd love to get your comment at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free 1-800-826-1495, 826 uh, 1495 John McWhorter, just skipping around here. This is from your last chapter um, and uh, this usage I associate with teenage girls because I think th- I first heard it among that uh, subgroup. Um, here's the, the example you give in the book. And he was all, so when's the party? And I was all, just ask me tomorrow when I have it all organized. And he was all, but I need to know now, and I'm all. So that usage of, of the, uh, the word all, uh, where did this uh, come from? How did it develop?
1: Um, that all is something that began as a kind of a dramatic imitation And so it was, he was all, as in, you know, all over him was. And then you do an imitation of how that person said something. But the signal always fades. And so something that starts out as a big fat joke isn't as funny after a while. The word terrible used to mean truly frightening. And now we talk about terrible when we mean, you know, a dish of scrambled eggs that wasn't quite hot. And in the same way, that all used to be a way of very directly mimicking somebody, but it's gotten to the point where it's a way of verbally quoting. So people will say all without their eyes brightening, without physically imitating anybody. All is just a way of framing something that somebody said. And it's becoming a piece of grammar of all things. In the 1970s, when somebody did all, it was a piece of acting, but it's now basically frozen into a little bit of stuff that quotes. And languages all over the world have what you call a quotative marker, and English is developing one. And what I mention in the book is that English is developing this new bit of grammar that, say, a Martian would find interesting and challenging to master, and yet we think of it as just slang and as something that people just shouldn't do. Now, in terms of formality, no, you shouldn't say all when you're giving some sort of address. You shouldn't say all. You shouldn't use all if you're writing. And that's right, definitely not but it doesn't mean that when people use all in colloquial speech that it's something to roll your eyes at that it's somehow wrong that it's some sort of excrescence especially because if the language were just allowed to go where it's going then that all would fuse possibly with the pronoun and the verb to be that comes before it and you might have a new irregular verb so I'm all you're all he's all say in a thousand years that could be i am all, you-zaw, he-raw. And so you'd have this verb where in the first-person singular, it's-maw. In the second-person singular, it's-raw. In the third-person singular, it's-zaw. So ma-raw-zaw, just like we have our crazy am is are. English doesn't have many verbs that are that irregular. It would be kind of cute if we developed a new one. But no, no, nobody cares about that. Instead, we just think that all is wrong because young people say it. I want us to look at these things in a different way, and that's a perfect example.
0: And you, uh, you I, I like this, you, you say that the best thing about this would be a highly irregular verb. Uh, English speaker might almost have irregularity envy, because it's uh, our, our language's very, the verb structure's very regular.
1: Yeah, we have, and we have, you know, think, thought, etc. But imagine learning some other European language where you have to learn all of these verbs that are much more irregular than that, and English can seem kind of chintzy, In comparison, wouldn't it be nice if we developed a new one? But it would be through things which, because they were new, would sound vulgar at first. But a language doesn't change in any other way. It's always little things that come in where, if you're aware of them, you think of them as bad because they're new. It's very hard to think of a new thing that comes into English today where it's not thought of as ridiculous, where people say, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's keep that going. But really everything, we should want
0: to keep going in that way. I want to talk about, uh, and skip to your uh, chapter, chapter three on grammar, when words stop being words, uh, one of the subsections, the signal fades, and you talk about exclamation points. Um, a, a Carl's Jr. restaurant receipt says uh, please let us know how we did. Three exclamation points. Um, kind of a standard number for proper texting. OMG with three exclamation points. And so if you don't have even one exclamation point, it, it comes off as almost rude.
1: Exactly. That's the way language always is. What starts out strong fades, and the result of the fading is often a new piece of grammar. So I use that exclamation point example to usher in a chapter about where all of our little stuff comes from. Where do the prefixes and the suffixes come from? And they come from what begin as what seem to be vulgar ways of using language or sloppy ways of using language. And so, for example, if we say slowly, that is the faded form of slow-like, which we happen to still be able to say. Lee comes from like. It's what happens when you say like over and over and over again, and it gets shorter. And, of course, there there may have been a time when people thought that it was improper to say lee instead of leek, which was the full word. And next thing you know, it's not a word. It's just a suffix. That's where it came from. Walked. There was a time when you said the equivalent of walk-did. There was no E-D. You said walk-did. Walked did Walked it. Walk-did. Walk-walked. Walk-walked. That's where that came from. All of that is language changing. And when you hear it happening, it's easy to think, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But that's where we get a lot of our fun little stuff.
0: Interesting. Uh, I've been reading some Jane Austen, and uh, what, what a great virtue in her world is gentlemanlike, which I guess that changed to gentlemanly in, mm-hmm. in our. There you go. You know, in, in over yep, just a couple of centuries. It's the, it's the equivalent, exactly. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you would uh, tell me about how literally uh, came to mean figuratively, <laughs> the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. Well, literally is interesting because it starts out meaning by the letter, exactly. And you just know that. Because the signal always fades, after a while, a word that means by the letter exactly. It's going to come to mean something a little vaguer. It's going to be an intensifier. It's going to come to mean something like really. And that's what's going to happen. You could almost have predicted that. Now, you can use really in all sorts of cases. You can use really when you're using a figurative expression and you want to give it a punch and you want to indicate that you're being sincere. So you might say, I was dying of thirst. No, I really mean I was dying of thirst. And of course you don't mean it, because you weren't dying of thirst, but you're trying to say that you were extremely hot. I really mean it. One way of saying that is I was literally dying of thirst. It's a way that you would use literally in a new meaning, as in I was really hot. I don't mean that I was just you know perspiring a little bit. Now, some people say, well, that's a problem, because it means that literally can either mean literally or it's opposite, which is figuratively. But the truth is, there are plenty of words that mean themselves, and they're opposite. They're called contronyms, and when nobody calls attention to them, we either don't know it, or if we find out about it, we think it's neat. So, fast. I'm running fast, but I'm fast asleep, or I'm stuck fast. Nobody complains that fast means both rapid and standing still. You seed a watermelon. Nobody would think that that means that you put the seeds in. But then, if you seed the ground... That doesn't mean that you're depriving some farmer of their livelihood by taking the seeds out of the ground. It means either putting them in or taking them out. And, you know, nobody bats an eye literally has joined the team. There are several dozen contronyms in English. It happens in lots of languages. And literally is another one of them. What matters is whether or not it interferes with comprehension. And nobody listens to someone saying, we were literally on a precipice or something like that. And thinks that the people actually were are standing on some promontory. To the extent that we understand what the person means without effort, language is doing its job because a major part of language is metaphor, is extension, is implications that are easy to comprehend, even if they aren't on the page, so to speak. So literally has just become more interesting, but there are people who are actually wearing T-shirts in protest Against literally, also meaning figuratively, when really I think it's as much fun as the fact that you can bolt something to the floor and then bolt out of the room. That's what language is.
0: They're they're actually T-shirts. I wasn't aware of that. Oh yeah. 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 That's old. Print such <laughs> uh, I want to uh, talk about an interesting language phenomenon that's coming out of uh, this presidential election. Uh, Got to be something good to come out of it, right? But um, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it comes from Donald uh, Trump's text uh, twi- uh, tweets, uh, which mm-hmm. are prodigious, and it's this uh, his use of the word "sad." So he'll say something like mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton is awful, sad, and it, sometimes it's lowercase, always with exclamation point or more. Sometimes all caps. And then that's, that's been used. I think people kind of enjoy that. Sometimes they use that now to make fun of Trump. But it, uh, that's an example. I think maybe that might go somewhere, even after this election's over.
1: Huh. I don't know. Um, he has his verbal tics just like anyone else, and his stand out more because we unfortunately hear so much from him. But um, we'll see if that becomes quote-unquote a thing. It's part of a spectator sport. You never know what's going to catch on. I mean, remember Charlie Sheen and his hashtag winning, which got a similar kind of attention a few years ago. I'm not sure how much legs that has turned out to have. It depends. It's funny, Ross Perot, back in the early 90s, if you wanted to imitate him spontaneously, you would say, now that's just sad, what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that's true.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's stuck for a while. Mm. It's now antique, partly because there was no Internet then, and so I think the memory of him doesn't stick the way it may have otherwise. But you never know, possibly. That is one way that things get started.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, now that you say that, I think maybe I'm just uh, you know stuck in this campaign. It, it, it may well fade after well, the, that. Well, yeah. it's hard not to be. It's hard not to be. This is an email that's coming from Carl. Uh, he says, how do you feel about he went missing? He says, it drives me crazy.
1: Well, it's just something people say. And so to the extent that a critical mass of people say it, of course, aesthetically, there are expressions that will just bother you, just like there are many expressions that bother me aesthetically for no reason at all. You can't help it. I I don't like when people say, can I get a Coke? Can I get a hamburger? It just strikes me as a slightly perverted usage of get for about 18 minor reasons, but none of it makes any logical sense. It's just me um it went missing i'll give you another one i took sick is what some people will say i always found that a little uh, just in the same way as i'm not crazy about coconut just i uh, know you, you got sick you didn't take sick but so many people say it that really you know complain about it. it's like saying you don't like maple trees it's just the way the language has happened to be so i get it but it's just it's, it's an expression not a hundred percent of american english use, speakers use it but enough people use it that it's legit. It's here.
0: Um, uh, by the way, the, um, the one of the ones that drives me crazy. It's in. I'll be in the you know the line to the lunch counter, and people ahead of me will say, "I'll do, I'll do mustard and uh, you know Miracle Whip." <laughs> was, yeah, I I, like I like <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: like that either. it's calling too much attention to, to what you're doing. Just order, yeah, and then see. Both of us know that. That aversion makes no logical sense. It's just this minor aesthetic quibble. It's like not liking a certain kind of sweater. But none of us are ever going to be immune
0: from that sort of thing. We mm. just have about a minute left. Uh, this one's just out, words on the move. Uh, what's, what's next, do you think?
1: Um, the next one is I thought that the American public also needed to understand that black English is not just slang and it's not just bad grammar. So in January, I've got Talking Back, Talking Black. Then after that is going to be a book about a much larger aspect of current American psychology that has, that it's only partly about language, that will probably have little to do about race. It's going to be a larger attempt at a kind of philosophical analysis of thought patterns. In the United States today. I haven't completely worked out what I want it to be, but it's not going to be like anything I've written before, and it's not going to be about this past election. So we'll see.
0: All right. Well, we'll, we'll stay tuned. Uh, always interesting. John McWhorter uh, teaches linguistic philosophy and music history at Columbia University. Uh, he has uh, authored many books. The latest is Words on the Move. John McWhorter, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.